Morning, church. All right. That didn't sound too strong. It sounds as if it's a lot of us uh, skipped breakfast this morning, but take heart. We are about to eat from the word of God. Amen? Man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. This, this is the bread of life. Um, there's a video I stumbled upon recently. It's, uh, it's old. It's like a grainy footage of... Um, 1997, but it's uh, Chinese underground Christians receiving uh, Bibles for the first time. And you see the suitcase open up, and you see each person taking one and just weeping, crying, because they finally have the Word of God in their hands. I pray and I challenge us that we would value that much as they do there. That being said, the Word of God comes to us from Acts chapter 11 today, verse 1 through 18, and this is the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Yopa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Yopa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Thank you for the reminder of the importance of God's word. It's encouraging. Uh, Good morning, church. Good to see all of you. I want to welcome all who are watching from home as well. Haven't done this in a while. But if you're watching from home, uh, we wave at you. My my family's at home watching as well today because some of them are not feeling too well. I see you, Sophia. Sit straight. (laughs) Hey, Joshua. All right, Um, we're at part 20 in our current series in the book of Acts, and we'll be covering part of chapter 11 today, where we see Peter, uh, who was spending 
significant time with Cornelius in our previous chapter. He, he is finally returning to the mother church in Jerusalem. And many of the church leaders are not happy at all with what they've been hearing. You know, they, they're waiting for him. And once they see him, they're like, Peter, right? How is it that you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? They're questioning him and, and wanting him to explain himself. And that question they raise, it, it may sound silly to our ears, but as we saw last Sunday, the, the question, that particular question in that Jewish context and in that time period was a very legitimate one, right? Because even Peter needed time to be thoroughly convinced that it was okay for him to now be associating with Gentiles the way he did in Cornelius' home. So, of course, you know, people in the mother church in Jerusalem were also going to raise some questions too, right? Um, it would actually, in my mind, been uh, deeply irresponsible for them if they didn't have any questions. And so that's where we are in the story of Acts. And, and today, I wanted to keep things more simple, and so I chose to do a two-part uh, outline, and it does look like the message will be somewhat shorter today, so you're welcome. I know that my messages have been longer you know, over the past few weeks. I know. I'm self-aware. But it's because God is, has given me much more to say, so what am I going to do, okay? Uh, that, that's how I take it anyway. All right, so part one, <clears throat> part one, what God is doing in the church is part one, but when I say the church there, I'm talking about the big church, right? church with a big C, the universal church, all of God's people everywhere, okay? So what is God doing in the big C church? And part two, what is God doing in the smaller local church, but also what is he doing in our own hearts? Okay, so today I'm going to look at the macro picture, and then I'm going to shift to the micro, okay? What is God doing at the macro level, what is God doing at the micro level? A right, simple outline. Part one, what is God doing in the church with the big C? Let me ask you a question. Uh, what first comes to mind when you think of Cornerstone Ministry? What comes to mind? Right. I think uh, for many of our nine o'clock service members, what first comes to mind for them, it would be the fresh donuts and coffee that they smell as they're walking up the stairwell over there, right? Maybe for some of you, uh, you're thinking about the, the music, right? the worship music that our worship team produces each week. You know, I, maybe you're like me and you take it for granted, you know, but every time a pastor visits our church, they usually comment, wow, your, your worship team is really good. Like, the quality of music is really high, they say. And my response to them is, like, really? <laughs> I, I guess I'm spoiled. That's my, I guess I'm spoiled because I can't really tell. You know? But that's what they tell me. I'm reminded that our worship team is, you know, talented. Or maybe you're someone, you know, who when you think of Cornerstone, uh, you think of your own community group, right, your small group. Maybe if you're in a discipleship group, it's your journey group that you think of because that's, that's where life really happens for you, right? That is your picture of cornerstone. 
And all of these things are good things, no doubt, but you know, we would be missing the point of who we are if we fail to recognize the, the greater work of God that is meant to characterize who we are as members of the larger church with the big C, okay? And I believe our, ministry, our ministry's vision statement is meant to capture this greater work of God. So in case you've forgotten, and you, you probably have because we, we haven't shared this in a while, but here's our vision statement. At Cornerstone... Our ultimate desire is to see people from all nations love and serve Christ through a life transformed by the gospel is, is our vision statement. It's a beautiful statement, you know, but, you know, these words are very, very easy to say. You know, saying that we desire, right, to see all people from all nations love and serve Christ. That's, that's easy to say. But actually doing the work of receiving such people and accommodating them into our church, right, and doing life with those who are different from us is the extremely hard part. And honestly, most people try to avoid it. Let's be honest. We love to say it, but when it comes down to practicing it, it's just very hard. It's easier, much easier to avoid the hassle. And it's not just hard for us. It's hard for everyone, including those in the early church, as we see here. And that's why the author Luke places so much emphasis on the story of Cornelius, because Cornelius's conversion story is is clear confirmation. It serves as confirmation that whether you liked it or not, God was opening up the dam that allowed for the outpouring of God's blessing to reach the Gentile nations. That's what, that's what God was doing. Whether you, whether you, you, know, you, you wanted him to or not, he was doing it. One commentator writes this, by the end of this section... Luke had told the story of Cornelius' vision no fewer than four times. And so, you know, when Pastor Andrew was reading earlier, you may have thought, didn't we cover this part already? No, it's, it's a fresh passage. We're moving on, and yet the story keeps on popping up. The commentator continues, Luke wants us to see that this story is of pivotal importance in the development of the story of redemption. You know, which is what? God is, God is bringing men and women from every tribe and every nation and every tongue into the church through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and Luke doesn't want us to miss this. Brothers, sisters, I'm sure this is nothing new to you, but let's not be guilty of taking this precious truth for granted Let's remember that God did not have to extend the gospel of grace to anyone. Despite what the world preaches, us, preaches to us every single day, I hope you can still confess that God does not owe anything to anyone in this life. And despite what the past 18 months have done to you, I hope your hearts have not grown so cold 
that you're no longer able to marvel at the extravagant grace that God offers to all the nations. God did not have to bless anyone, but he did. And it's the conversion of Cornelius that marked the opening of the floodgate of his blessings to his nation, to the nations. So as we see here, something very significant is happening. But not surprisingly, there were leaders in the Jerusalem church who did not like what they were hearing. They became very uncomfortable. Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Explain yourself. And so in response, Peter patiently describes for them the vision God gave him. And I'm not going to repeat the vision because we covered it last Sunday. But what I want to do is I'm going to mention what Peter said at the very end and the conclusion that everyone thankfully makes after hearing Peter out. Okay, so this is the part that we didn't cover. Verse 15, Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. The Holy Spirit fell on these, these what we used to consider filthy Jews, or filthy, filthy Gentiles, rather, not Jews. They're non-Jews, filthy Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, this is a very important verse, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, thankfully, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's how the story unfolds. And so the, the key point Peter makes that convinced these Jewish leaders to break from their Jewish paradigm, their Jewish traditions, is verse 17, right? If, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, right? if the Holy Spirit was poured upon them as the Holy Spirit was poured upon us when we believed in Jesus, who was I? Right? How could I stand in God's way? Right? In other words, if, if God himself was no longer making a distinction between Jew and Gentile, right, then who am I to make that distinction? If, if God himself is no longer withholding his covenant blessings from these Gentiles, then who am I to withhold God's blessings from them is the argument. But I, I, I believe I, I need to be clear about something here because we live in such a loosey-goosey world, you know. Once the floodgates open, it's like everything all of a sudden becomes acceptable in the minds of people, it seems. So let me, let me still, uh, let, let me make clear that there are still boundaries that we have to honor here, okay? Uh, this, this does not mean that whoever has this, you know, so-called Holy Spirit moment, right? Whoever has this 
emotional or this dramatic spiritual experience that all of a sudden that they're automatically counted or should be counted as a believer. You know such people. You've seen it probably many times back in the day when you were kind of growing up either in youth group or college group, right? People having these amazing experiences. And what are they doing now? Many of them are living rebellious lives apart from God. They hate God. So these experiences, they don't guarantee anything. And even in this passage, we're given some helpful criteria as to who is to be counted as a Christian. And so if you haven't ever done so, it is worth asking the question of what exactly is a Christian? And how can we truly know someone is a believer or not? And I, I, I understand, you know, uh, only God ultimately knows who is his, right? Because we, we cannot see, I, I cannot see the heart of man with absolute precision. So ultimately God knows, but there are at least three elements here in this passage that we, we ought to recognize. Number one is this. It's very, very plain and simple, but it's very easy to overlook as well. Number one is a person must Possess faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? The, those last three words are the most important. In Jesus Christ. Okay? Verse 17, once again. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this implies that God gave them the same gift because they too believed. The Gentiles too believed in Jesus. And I say that it's very easy to overlook this because, you know, human nature, I'm, I am, I've been tempted many times myself. and I've been in ministry for a long time now. You know, when you meet someone who is extremely sincere and genuine, you know, they, they sincerely hold to their beliefs. It's very easy for you to kind of buy into just their sincerity, even if their testimony has no mention of Jesus, <laughs> even if there is no genuine love for Jesus. And that's why when I'm evaluating Someone's profession of faith. It matters very little to me. Maybe, maybe that's an overstatement. It, it, does, it does matter because everyone's on a journey, right? It, it, it's better to, to have some reverence for God. But what I'm saying is I can't make that the decisive criteria that, you know, because people say to me, Pastor, I believe there is a God. I believe in God. See, the problem is this. Every Jew, every Hindu, Muslim, every cult member will be able to say the same thing. I believe in God. So I don't place that much 
value in such a statement, no matter how genuine that person may be. What one must do is to place their faith, so you can't be just faith in anything, right? Got to be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ specifically to be saved. So, brothers, sisters, it might be a good time to evaluate where you are, right? Who is Jesus to you? Is he precious to you? Do you love him specifically? Do you love him? Do you actually know him through, through God's word? Do you have a relationship with him? Or is he just one of many gods who you think will lead you to heaven one day? Those are some good questions to ask yourselves. Number two, repentance of sins. This is highlighted as well. Verse 18, and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love how it says that God has granted repentance because That implies that even the ability to repent is a gift from God. And to me, that's humbling to know. Think about what that's saying. It means that none of us left alone has the ability to even recognize the grotesqueness of our sins and how much it actually offends God. See, but a heart that is touched by God a heart that is made soft by the grace of God is a repentant heart. So whenever you see a heart that is truly repentant before the Lord, you should thank the Lord. You should thank God, knowing that it's a result of God's grace at work in that person's life. It doesn't just happen. We can't manufacture that. God has to gift that, even the act of repentance to us. If there's no evidence of repentance, then it's appropriate to question whether that person's faith is real. And the opposite of a repentant spirit, which is easily identifiable, is an arrogant and a prideful and entitled spirit, which seems to have become more of the norm in our day. Thirdly, New life is highlighted as well. It's repentance that leads to life. Of course, this is a new life in Christ. It's repentance that leads to life. It's not repentance that leads to death or misery or a pattern of habitual sin. Repentance that leads to life. And I'm not saying at all that it's, it's wrong to live a life of regular repentance. We must We are called to do that, but at the same time, the Christian life ought to also be characterized by a measure of victory over our sins as well. When is the last time you experienced victory over your sins? And as believers, as we mature in our faith, the fruit of the Spirit also ought to become more evident in our lives. Is the fruit of the Spirit recognizable in you? I 
I like what Kevin DeYoung recently posted. He's one of my favorite pastors these days. He, wrote, he writes, we should not think that mature Christianity requires us to constantly downgrade ourselves and talk as if we are constant spiritual failures. Of course, apart from Christ, we are spiritual failures. But it's not healthy to only talk about how miserable we are in our sin. Right? That's, that's one side, that's one aspect. You know, we have been richly graced in Christ. And if there's no recognition and, and celebration of that in your life, what are we doing? If there's no joy in your salvation, then are we not missing the big picture? He also writes, God is not interested in making us feel miserable for our sin for the rest of our lives. He's interested in us turning away from our sin and turning to him. And so, brothers and sisters, that is what God is doing in, in the church with the big C. Right? He is bringing men and women from every tribe, every nation, every tongue into the church right, through faith, through repentance, that leads to new life in Jesus Christ. It's not just an open gate for anyone, you know, regardless of what they believe. It's faith, repentance in Christ. Repentance that leads to new life in Christ. Part two, what God is doing in the smaller local church, but also what he's doing in our own hearts. And I, I thought it would be worth reflecting a bit on the kind of resistance that we see, right? Not only in our passage today, but in the rest of the story of the early church. There's this resistance to go along with what God is doing, right? Resistance to his master plan. There's resistance to change. In our passage today, the, the resistance actually isn't as strong as I would have expected. You know, people were initially upset that Peter was intermingling with these Gentiles and they were waiting to hear his explanation. But, it, but once they did, they, it says they gave glory to God pretty immediately, right? So there was some initial resistance, but the Jerusalem church seems to have been pretty receptive to the idea, this idea that God has abolished this wall. At least at first. And I say at least at first because this is not the whole story, right? We know, based on what the rest of the Bible says, that this, this circumcision party, also known as the Judaizers, their influence remained very strong in the early church. The Apostle Paul, for those of you especially who, who uh, was sitting in the Galatians study right, not too long ago, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, about how these Judaizers were continuing to distort the gospel message. And he even writes about how Peter, the great apostle, and also Barnabas were pressured to appease this group, which led to Paul rebuking them in public. Right, think about that. You know? Even Peter, a Peter who, who is, in, in our story today, receiving this vision from the Lord, it's Peter who is at the forefront of convincing the church to welcome Gentiles in. Right? He's leading the charge, and yet later on down the road, he falls back into his old patterns again. And that's why I say 
old traditions die hard. That's another way of saying people do not change that easily. One reason people don't change that easily is because we're all people of habit, right? And it, it does take a lot of time and effort to break our old habits and our old customs and our old routines and our old beliefs. But another reason why people have such a hard time changing is because whenever there is change, there's this unwelcome pushback that we have to face and deal with. And whenever that happens, it just makes our lives that much more difficult. We'd rather just maintain status quo if that's possible. If that's ever an option, status quo, then we, we would tend to choose status quo because we just don't want to rock the boat and make life more difficult than it already is, right? Let me give you an example of, of what happens in the Asian tradition often. You know, one of the most common Asian traditions is preparing a fancy food table. Okay, I'm sure there's a better word for that, but <laughs> there's this table and then, you know, uh, people, the, the family, they prepare like nice fruit. It's got to be very good looking fruit. Right? It can't be rotten fruit. It's got to be like, you know, no blemishes on it. Uh, usually there's some rice cake, fancy rice cake, you know, catered somewhere. And they, they prepare the table, and what, do they, what does the family do during Lunar New Year? They bow before the table, right? But they're not bowing before the table. They're bowing before what? They're bowing before their dead ancestors. And the original belief was that the spirits of your dead ancestors were somehow present in that ritual and receiving the food that you prepare for them, Right? So when members in the family become Christians who don't share in that worldview, you would think that they would say, I can't do this. This is, this is like, <laughs> this is pagan ritual, essentially. This is so anti-Christian. This is not God. You, you would think that everyone would respond. But they don't. It's hard for them to go against what has been a long-standing tradition partly because of the pushback that they would receive from the rest of the family. Like who wants to be an outcast? Right? Who wants to sever relationship you know, with family? No one does. This happens all the time. You know, my, my mom was, was bold enough to say no to her parents. I'm not going to bow to, to my dead ancestors and you know, basically worship them that way. And, and uh, she, she also instructed us. It was a teaching moment. She told us, we don't do this as Christians. But that's not the norm in Korea. You just kind of go along with the old traditions because it's easier to do it that way. So one very important spiritual lesson we can learn from the book of Acts is that wherever God is at work to expand his church, Right? There, there is always going to be some resistance that comes with it. Right? There's always opposition. Which means, brother and sister, I've said this to you before, but if you really want to be part of gospel ministry, right? if, if you really want to be a part of this, I'm not talking about just you know, passively 
coming and going, the church. But if you really want to be part of the gospel ministry, you cannot be afraid of opposition. It's part of the package. You know, for those of you who are athletes, man, I used to consider myself an athlete, but uh, no more. Right? I, I have a hard time even walking around these days around the neighborhood. Uh, but for those of you who are still athletes, right, <laughs> you know the saying. You know the saying, right? You can't play scared. You cannot play the game scared, no matter what the game is. Because you know that as soon as you hesitate, that one split second makes all the difference. Right? That one inch that you fail to gain or retreat, it makes a difference. Right? You're, you're going to be late to make the play. You, last, you, you, you lost your chance. And ironically, those who play scared actually are the ones who tend to get hurt more easily. Right? You would think that if you play it safe, you will be kept safe. No, that's not true. You start playing safe, you're going to get hurt more. Right? And it's not that different with real life. You know, playing life safe will only stunt your growth and cause you to lose your God-given purpose in life. You're going to be late to make the play. You cannot fear opposition. It's part of life. Part of life is learning to overcome opposition and growing from those experiences. It's growing from the trials of life that you face each and every day. You cannot be scared of those things. Um, I shared a story of Chris last Sunday. I just, I don't know, for some reason, I have these Chris's stories in my mind. So I'm going to share one more. This, this happened last, this past week. Um, sorry, Chris, if you're watching from home. Uh, she, she's probably like the, maybe the only pure extrovert in our house. Okay, it's very energetic. And I love that about her. Um, yeah, sometimes she overdoes it, but, you know, it's just, she's only seven, so. She is, I was minding my own business at the breakfast table, you know, looking at some things, I guess. I think it was on my phone. I was just reading some articles, and, and she, she, she runs to me and, and with a lot of energy. Uh, Abba, did you know that I'm really creative? I am. I, I didn't say anything. I am. I, I'm creative, right? I'm creative in playing Minecraft, too, randomly. I didn't ask you about Minecraft. I'm, but I'm creative playing Minecraft, too, you know. Um, but in my world, in my world, there are no monsters or scary creatures, she emphasized. Right? My world is different from Opa's world. Right? Opa means older brother. Right? And so I was tempted to say something to her in that moment, but I, I just... Words weren't coming quickly, so I missed my chance. But really, what I wanted to say is this. So, well, my child, <laughs> my daughter, how can you learn how to be courageous in your world if there are no monsters? How can you grow in your world if there's no monsters to conquer? You can't grow in your safe little world. 
that thought, that thought did pop up. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, it might be funny for you to hear, given that it was only Minecraft, but this is everyone's tendency, is it not? And I know how her mind operates, so, you know, I kind of know how she is. Uh, in the boys' world, you know, there is great adventure. There are monsters everywhere. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't get Minecraft, by the way. Yeah. Caleb, I, don't, I, I, I try to introduce him to, like, Street Fighter, you know, more fun games. I don't know, that's fun to me. I don't know, Street Fighter. No, he always gravitates to Minecraft. I don't know why. It's so boring to me. Like the graphics, I don't know, I don't want, but you know, I guess, I guess it encourages creativity, so just a different sort of brain, okay? Um, so whatever. But I think it's important for us to consider, especially because we're living in a world now where people are, at least they seem to be paranoid about everything. There's so much fear in living. And so let me take a moment to remind us all that on this side of heaven, God has decided to always place some kind of opposition in front of us. You know, the, the floodgates have truly opened in that sense, right? The, the Gentiles are pouring in, and, and we are also Gentiles. But, you know, don't, don't, don't just think of this, this unfolding plan as like a Jew versus Gentile thing. It's also Gentile against Gentile, you know. Gentiles have to become comfortable with other Gentiles as well. Because there are these barriers between each, each and every one of us. There are these unsafe people coming in, intruding into our space. They're pouring into the kingdom of God. And the point that we ought not to miss is that none of us are meant to be comfortable in the church if we are truly committed to going along with God's plan, you see, of welcoming the nations in. So we have a choice to make. You know, we, we can either choose to live in our own safe enclaves and forever be the Korean Presbyterian Church of Washington. There is that option. Or we can choose the uncomfortable path of learning how to better love those people outside of our own traditions and, and customs and culture. You know, for some reason, uh, YouTube suggested that I watch these, you know, baby cuckoo birds and what they do in their nests. It's amazing how the YouTube algorithm works. It's annoying, actually, right? Uh, just because I watch one bird video doesn't mean I want to watch, like, <laughs> 10, 20 other bird videos each day. But, you know, these videos come flooding in, and I'm watching, like, I, I find myself watching these baby cuckoo birds basically pushing their siblings out of the nest like this. Like, it's amazing. What, like, they're wired to do this. If you didn't know, <laughs> don't blame me if YouTube floods your, you know, feed with these, you know, bird videos. But they, they, they like, you know, no feathers, no, no hair yet. Basically, they look like small chickens, right? And they're, they're spreading their chicken wings out there and they're pushing eggs out of the nest, pushing, like, their younger siblings out of the nest, trying to basically kill them so that they can get all the food from mommy and daddy. And, you know, they're, they're only birds. 
So it's not like we can call them sinful. <laughs> you know, can we call birds sinful? I don't think they have a moral conscience, right? God doesn't judge them the same way God judges us. But I'm thinking God would want us to at least look at that example and see ourselves in it. You know, we can learn from God's creation in this way. Wouldn't you agree that just like the cuckoo bird, our own natural human disposition is to push away anything <laughs> that might threaten our own safety and comfort? It's like, I don't want to be inconvenienced by other people who don't share the same food or customs as I do. It's going to ruin my church experience. Get out of here. Pastor, what have you done to my church? Remember, that was what someone once shared with me a few years ago. There are too many strangers here, essentially. It's making me uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, I'm not suggesting that we all just become, you know, anti-Korean culture or Asian culture or anti-traditionalists. You know, I, I am a theological conservative, okay? That, that, should have, that should be very clear by now. Right? I am a theological conservative because I believe that God's truth never changes. And for the most part, right, these old traditional creeds and confessions and old wisdom passed down from one generation to the next should be conserved. It should be preserved. That's what a conservative essentially is. But as one writer put it, traditional values is important, but traditionalism can be disastrous. The members of the church in Jerusalem wanted to preserve the wrong things and were unwilling to expand the right things. You know, when you think of traditionalism, you can simply think of it as just trying to maintain tradition for the sake of tradition. Because <laughs> you, just, you just don't want to Rock the boat again for any reason. I just want my just routine, right? my beliefs just to stay intact. The way I practice my faith, I want to be the same no matter what. I want to just sing the old, same old songs. As an EM in an immigrant church, We're going to have some traditions and customs that may be good, right? So even the good ones, though, may not be necessary. And sometimes they may serve as a hindrance to furthering gospel advancement, even the good ones. And so it's our responsibility to examine what those might be and to remain open to change, despite the opposition that may exist, no matter how uncomfortable we may feel at times. So, brothers and sisters, I believe this is what God is wanting to do in the local church and in our hearts, right? It's that through the power of the gospel, God is wanting to help us overcome our traditionalism, at least the tendency. 
He is helping us to overcome our cultural prejudices, even our racist tendencies, so that we can join God's larger mission in reaching the nations. You know, I, I really hate what has happened in Afghanistan over the past few weeks. And even though I'm not surprised by the level of utter incompetence demonstrated by our own government, it's still greatly upsetting, to put it mildly. But I have a choice. I have a choice to just pout all day, every day, and just kind of, you know, badmouth the government. They deserve it. But I can also step back and look at it from another perspective too, right? And it's to say, by God's providence, thousands of Afghan refugees have now been sent here, right, close to where we live, to be cared for and ministered to, which means that there is now an opportunity for us as a church, right, to serve them. That's another perspective. Right? And I think you can do both. You can be critical, you know, of what government's done, but also you could be extremely gracious, right, and generous in how you seek to bless those who are different and might make you uncomfortable. So over the next few days and weeks, some of our leaders will be looking into some practical ways in which we can offer support during this turbulent time. Okay, now, the, of course, the easy option for people with a lot of money like ourselves, okay, would, would just be to donate money, right? And, and there is a time and place for that. I'm not saying that, you know, we should never just donate money, but I'm hoping that as we mature as a church, that we would also be open to extending ourselves a bit more, you know, and learning how to stretch ourselves beyond our normal comfort zones. And I know that that's much easier said than done, but I'm going to remain hopeful that change for us is possible. Because just as a thick wall of partition between the Jews and Gentiles had to be torn down, Right? These walls of partition that divide us from others, divide Gentiles from other Gentiles, also need to be torn down through the work of the gospel. So I think I believe that's what God is doing in our midst. I know there are limitations as an EM, because we also have to be mindful of you know, our relationship with the KM and, and what they're thinking. So there are these natural restraints placed on us, but we still we need to do our very best to continue maturing and growing and not trying to create our own little safe, you know, special enclaves protected from the rest of God's kingdom. So let's keep that in mind. If you agree with that, respond with an amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, in the midst of our own personal problems and discomforts, I pray that you would open our eyes, help us, help us to behold your greatness and the big story of redemption that is unfolding according to your sovereign plan. Sometimes it truly does feel as if our problems are the biggest problems there are, but when we behold your glory 
and your unfolding sovereign plan through history, we see once again that this life is not about us. Rather, it's about you. And it's about how we are called to play a, a small part in your great redemptive story. So we offer ourselves to you once again, and we invite you, O oh Lord, to further use us and sanctify us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and give praise to God.